0: A bit lit celebrating research and creativity of all kinds.
1: Hi, Jen. Hi, Mira. How are you doing? I'm uh, very, very uh, good and uh, so happy to see you and chat with you over Zoom.
0: Thank you for asking me. I'm, I'm honored to be here to, to talk about the work that you've been doing and about um, our uh, relationship and collaboration over
1: the years. Yes, yes. When Andy asked me to be on a bitlet, I couldn't think of anyone uh, more uh, compassionate and someone who uh, really, really accompanied me uh, through this journey. Such a cliche, but it is. Uh, as, As you, since I came to the US as a grad student in 2008, Uh, So I'm very, very happy for your generous uh, uh, time and labor and willingness to have a conversation with me. I'm delighted.
0: Um, So do you want to introduce yourself and tell people a little bit about um, how you came to be um, a Renaissance specialist in the academic world?
1: oh that's a very very that's uh, uh that's a great uh i have a great story about how i came to become an early modernist uh but i i am mira asaf Cafenteris. i uh, am uh, an incoming assistant professor of english at Butler university in indianapolis uh, for the last uh 13 years i've been at ohio state uh, first as a, a doctoral student Student, and then after as uh, contingent faculty. And this is when I when and where I met uh, Jen, who uh, is my mentor, my friend, and someone I, uh, that inspires me very much. And I learned so much, so much from uh, how I came to become an early modernist. It's a really, uh, it's a very, very uh, embarrassing story, uh, but you know what's what's another embarrassing story. Uh, so the, uh, I uh, did my BA at the Lebanese University, which is the State University of uh, Lebanon, uh, and because of the war, my uh, uh, the university stopped hiring uh, people. Um, and the professors who taught me for four years uh, all did their PhDs in the US when new formalism was uh, en vogue. Uh, so we never, ha- we never referred to the Renaissance as uh, the early modern period. That was not part of uh, the register at all. Uh, so when I went to the American University of Beirut to, the- to do my um, Masters, uh, I was uh, I had graduated being uh, by, by, by from the Lebanese University by writing uh, a, a thesis on James Joyce, uh, and I thought that I'm going to become a Joycean, uh, and the first uh, uh, the first course on offer was early modern religion. And I thought, oh, this is pre-modernity. This is going to be the course that helps me really delve into James Joyce's really tense relationship with the Catholic Church. Uh, And I signed up for the class. And then uh, the first few months were uh, very hard because I was not used to the text at all. Uh, I remember we were uh, reading uh, uh, Knox uh, and uh, oh, and. Um,
0: uh, John Knox is quite an introduction to the period. Like of all texts to start with to kind of have early on, that's a tough one.
1: Yeah, that's what I remember, and uh, and the rest of uh, the rest is history. I stayed with the period. Uh, uh, thank you for asking me this question. Uh, what about you, uh, Jen? Would you introduce yourself to uh, the r- listeners and audience of uh, a bit lit?
0: Yeah, so I'm Jennifer Higginbotham. I'm an associate professor of English at Ohio State University. Um, and I actually arrived at the university just shortly before Mira um, came as a graduate student. She was a student in my very first graduate class that I taught. So I have you know, watched her um, progress from there to her current moment. And she's also kind of watched me become more comfortable in my role as a faculty member. Um, so we have a, a long history with that. Um, my research has focused quite a lot on feminist approaches to uh, Renaissance and early modern literature and particularly working on women's poetry right now well,
1: fa- fabulous uh, fabulous I also want to uh, 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 tell uh, uh, um, tell people that uh, Jen uh, has um, uh, Collaborator is collaborating on. Uh, she has written an, a great, great essay for uh, a special issue uh, on racing queens that uh, uh, the open access uh, journal uh, uh, Scholar and Feminist Online is going to publish in uh, in the fall uh, and. Uh, It was a really, a great, great uh, moment for me to be editing my professor, uh, my mentor. Uh, I uh, felt very much, it was such an honor and a privilege to uh, read your work from the uh, from the perspective of perspective of an editor, and uh, it just fascinated me how you were able to uh, bring in uh, pop- the p- popular music of Janelle Monet alongside uh, the masks of Ben Johnson. Would you like to talk to me a little bit uh, and to all of us uh, in the ether uh, about about that that piece? Well,
0: that piece is for the issue that you are co-editing on Racing Queens, which in and of itself was looking to cross time periods, and engineer boundaries. So it gave me an opportunity to think through some of the issues that had been percolating around. And one of the things that I found is that the students I work with always teach me so much and help me see things that I hadn't seen before. Um, and so, uh, so I started sort of thinking through the idea of racing queens and where that might get me. And I'm a huge Janelle Monet fan. And I've been teaching Janelle Monet in my transhistorical literary classes, um, often when I want to teach people about metrical variation um, and aesthetics and style. And so I, I have a really uh, real fondness for her poetic genius. Um, I don't do very well with Johnson most of the time <laughs> I find Ben Johnson very difficult I've, I've never quite known what to do with his mask and so actually what was fun about that piece for me was that it was like Janelle Monet gave me a way to understand Johnson um you know I can do Janelle Monet without Johnson I don't need him for her but she really did help me have a better sense of um, the mask as this funny um, genre that is both visual but also literary, and it's highly specific, you know, and it's storytelling, but it, it's not particularly coherently narrative. And so um, it was really fun to do. I was sort of bringing together some of the things I've been doing in the classroom, and it gave me an opportunity to actually you know, talk about that in a research setting. So I'm really looking forward to, to seeing the, the journal as a, as a whole. Um, and I also think that the the juxtaposition of royalty and um, race and gender is particularly salient right now. Could you say a little bit about how the special issue came about um, and where uh, how that collaboration got started, um, especially for other early career scholars who might be thinking about You know, how can I pursue these kinds of professional opportunities?
1: Yes, uh, I would love that. Uh, I uh, have uh, been uh, writing my, uh, I, I've been uh, writing public humanities uh, pieces uh, that read uh, the Meghan Markle uh, phenomenon through the lens of the early modern period, but specifically uh, the way Me- Markle is raised and the anti-blackness that uh, uh that so viciously uh, surfaces uh, in the conversation around her and i thought I, I saw very much a lot of traces uh in this uh the, these tropes uh these anti-black this misogynoir uh, tropes in uh, the plays of the period uh, uh, that we study, the early modern period. So I started the, uh, writing uh, public humanities pieces that bring these two as well, these two uh, uh, themes together of early modern queenship and Meghan Markle's uh, uh, blackness, black uh, blackness as a, a woman in supposedly in, in power but in in the public sphere uh, so mm. to speak uh, uh, so as a result of these pieces uh, Kim Hall uh, who is uh, who has also become a mentor Kim Hall who wrote the field shifting uh, things of darkness uh, uh, reached out and suggested uh, this journal because it's it comes out of Barnard and this is where Kim Hall uh, uh, uh is uh, uh, w- w- is uh, an um a named chair there uh, the Lucille Clifton uh, chair uh, and um, and then uh, she introduced me to the editors uh we uh, we uh, I submitted a proposal and then I uh, reached out to uh to Sonia Drimmer, who is uh, an art historian and has written beautifully, again, about uh, the presentation of women uh, through, through her lens uh, uh, of art historian uh, who works on the medieval period. Uh, and also I reached out to uh, Treva uh, Lindsay, who is a uh, black feminist historian uh, at Ohio State, and is very, very uh, knowledgeable uh, about uh, Black uh, womanhood and girlhood. Uh, so, and because uh, the uh, the special issue is one that bridges. Uh, uh, Different uh, historical periods, uh, periods and genres. Uh, we thought, you know, we 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 have worked so much so well together uh, as um, uh, three co-editors.
0: That kind of real collaboration is so exciting to see. Um, you know, I think that the the ability to kind of bring all that together is is something that people have been trying to work towards. For a very long time, and to see it all come together is very exciting.
1: Uh, it's it's it it's really it was really really uh, such a very uh, such a generative, generative generative opportunity to be able to think across the p- disciplines and uh, historical moments, and see if you know where where. Uh, um, Concepts and ideology, uh, ideologies overlap, and then you know diverge and uh, create other forms of differentiation, power structures. These are all uh, themes that uh, motivate me so much. Yeah, I actually just finished teaching a, um, a hybrid
0: undergrad grad class on pre-modern race. And it was intended to be um, multidisciplinary. It was, of course, pre-modern. So I was doing medieval Renaissance and you know, a little bit up towards the late 17th, 18th century, huge range. You know, you cannot be an expert on all of that. But it was so intellectually exciting to go back and really find out things that I simply didn't know. Um, For example, just sort of understanding really how Mediterranean slavery worked, really being able to kind of dig into that and to have a sense that, you know, one of the things that was a factor in the development of the transatlantic slave trade was when the Ottoman Empire cut off access to um, the another source of slaves from the Mediterranean. And so suddenly having that global picture was, was huge for me in terms of really allowing me to, to have a, a sense of both what um, the, the early modern English context and British context had in common with other aspects of the, the sort of global move towards chattel slavery, but also like what's different about it. You know, what, what is particularly English? When is it English and how much is it European? Mm-hmm. Um, those things were really fascinating.
1: Absolutely, that's, uh, uh, um, that's a, ve- I would love, I would have loved to be on this, uh, uh, a, a, a fly. Uh, well, I taught road. you,
0: You one of your, <laughs> um, your essays actually, it was one of the, the pieces um, where you were, you wrote about, you know, why race before race now? Uh, And that was one of the pieces that I had um, all of us look at getting a sense of, you know, not just the content of the course, but also the stakes. And I think that's one of the things that um, I really find uh, fruitful about your scholarship is that I think that you are very good, not just at arguing what's there, um, but why it's important for us to notice it. Um, and since I, I said, you know, with Johnson, for example, that Janelle Monet gave me a, an inroad, um, one of the things about this class was that I taught the Fairy Queen, which I have never taught and have avoided. Uh, yeah. But I was inspired by the work that you have done on Duessa, um, who wears a Persian mitre. Yeah. And so seeing um, the Fairy Queen through your eyes gave me an inroad to it that I didn't have before. And I actually enjoyed teaching the Fairy Queen, which I never thought I would. I suddenly have you know an interest in Spencer that wasn't there before because you had opened up um, some, some avenues of exploration that um, I hadn't seen.
1: Well, thank you very much. I really, I, I, I've, I've also grappled a lot with Spencer. I, uh, um, uh, he, uh, it, it, he's like the, uh, for me. Uh, oh, uh, uh, was this opaque? Uh, World that I was, I did not have access to, uh, even though I've taken Spencer classes. But I always felt that there is this big wedge between uh, my uh, positionality and this world that uh, Spencer weaves. Uh, and when I looked at uh, the the way that not only Duessa is raised, but also Una is very much created. Uh, uh, uh the, how how you can see white womanhood uh, created uh but, but particularly through uh una's white sentimentality which became so much down the road uh a part of uh white supremacist uh, playbook uh, um, uh in the 18th and 19th century um and uh, uh m- my belief and the, P- uh, the belief of uh critics who work uh in the pre-modern critical waste theory and this is margot Hen- hendricks's uh nomenclature is that uh our life and uh, the the tragedy of chattel slavery the tragedy of racial capitalism not only are they ongoing but uh, the germs of these ideologies very much uh, uh, appear in our period. Uh, they do not appear in the form that we know, or later be, be became chattel slavery. But it's not uh, the, uh, uh, it's not um, the ideas travel and uh, they uh, mutate. One thing I wanted to ask
0: you about, this is because I've been thinking about the work that you've been doing on dynastic alliances and the way that those were often mediated through um, the queens and their foreignness. Mm -hmm. And having just taught the course on pre-modern race, one of the things that I was struck by was in the Spanish context, um, blood purity was so central to the caste system and the idea of, you know, who was Spanish and who wasn't um, and you know whether or not as a converso you were Christian or not christian Um, and I was wondering you know in terms of the idea of the royal bloodline where the queens are kind of bringing in not only their alliance but also their blood um, what role did that play across Europe the idea of you know, pure blood versus contaminated blood. I was recently looking at this in Elizabeth Carey's The Tragedy of Miriam, where um, it worked in some ways the the opposite of how I had expected it to, which was that rather than in that case where Herod had married Miriam, her blood was purifying his base mm-hmm. blood and so that her children were seen as, you know, now purified of it and, and whitened in a, a kind of Jewish sense. How much did that kind of sense of not wanting to have a Catholic queen because that would contaminate the blood, how much was that spread across Europe?
1: i well, uh uh what a great uh, uh question jen i uh, uh in the iberian context there's definitely the limpieza the the sun the, the purity of blood uh but what iberianists tell us uh that uh the intensity of these uh uh lo- lo- laws or decrees uh were not uh unanimous all the time uh that there's, you know, uh, in some places they were enforced, or in and other time, uh, some times where they they were really enforced, and some other times where they were actually, you know, tolerated. Uh, so it was not a kind of clear cut. Uh, uh, moment of uh in groups and out groups uh, there there was a lot of uh intermixing happening uh and uh the the work of nick jones for example uh shows that how, uh how much uh blackness in particular uh was part of the um The fabric of Iberian society, it's, uh, uh, and every facet of it. black people whether enslaved or not or, or free uh, occupied central uh, uh c- central positions in uh in in spain according uh, to nick jones's uh work uh, also in in um, um, in england as uh, in london as the work of MTS habib uh, sh- shows uh, uh so to go to to uh, to go back to the idea of uh of of Queens. So Queens coming from uh, Iberia, like the Spanish, uh, uh, the Infanta was very much racialized. Catholicism was very much racialized as this uh, contaminating um, uh, factor, but also her proximity to blackness uh, as somebody from the Iberian Peninsula from, from that period made her blood very much not only Catholic but made her uh, uh, blackened her. Um, uh, uh, in in Yasmin Hashemi, the work of Yasmin Hashemi shows how um, Anne Boleyn was referred to very much as swarthy uh as black uh because of her foreignness so and it was not only that she her nationality as french but it's also uh uh her her proximity to blackness her her foreignness becomes black and um so how 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 was uh, how was this approach in uh in our period and in 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 the in, uh, and the english uh, text which is uh, mostly what uh, uh, what i work on um, In uh, English texts, you can see either uh, ultimate rejection of foreignness, like in Spencer's Fairy Queen, because as as Dennis Britton tells us, uh, there's no conversion in the Fairy Queen. And this conversion comes very much from the idea of the elect that, uh, religion passes on uh, through heredity. And this is why we need to just excise foreignness altogether uh, because co- a religious conversion is not going to bring about uh, this, this uh, uh, pure co- uh, commonwealth that uh, the Extreme Puritans uh, believed in and still believe in, like, st- uh, still, you know, we, uh, white evangelism in the US is still alive and well and very much part of American politics, uh, and, you know. Um, Trump, for example, our former former president, was referred to as a Cyrus, uh, King Cyrus, the biblical Cyrus, who, uh, who was degenerate, but also was part of uh, this uh, um, eschatological uh, uh, idea of the second coming. Um, In other plays, for example, in uh, Shakespeare's Henry VIII, uh, uh, queenship is not, uh, uh, the racial contamination is not an issue uh, in Henry VIII because uh, the the idea of the king, uh, of the powerful king that uh, Shakespeare's Henry V also uh, brings about uh, the body, the perfect body of the king, is what ensures uh, uh, purity and this linear futurity. Uh, the, the foreign queen can easily be absorbed into Englishness. And there's this idea, this uh, um, the image of the grafting um, that was very, very much in circulation uh, In the Jacobean period. And Barnaby Barnes, in one of his dedications to James I, says, I don't worry that your children are going, you're going to marry off your children to non English, uh, because like grafting, your children are going to absorb uh, any kind of blemish of foreignness uh, in in, in place. So you can see different, uh, different uh, um, uh, a manifestation of, uh, of how race was, uh, created and enforced in, 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 in the works that we're doing. That's so fascinating
0: because it's like, um, instead of being a kind of stable ideology, it's a sort of thing that can be mobilized selectively in order to create particular power relations. So if, you know, if the foreignness of the queen is something you want to use, to stigmatize someone, then it's important. Otherwise you can, you know, if you don't want to use it, it doesn't serve your political ends. Yeah. Then you can say, well, the King's body is the yeah. body that really yeah. matters. Yeah. I, I mean, your work on Meghan Markle actually also, I think um, comes in here because I was thinking about how Meghan's blackness marks her as foreign. Um, and problematic for people and a lot of the the really vicious attacks on her, while the fact that Kate Middleton was a commoner somehow becomes sidelined, she yeah. becomes this kind of almost royal, um, inborn queen, you know, future queen, in a way that is is a remarkable contrast, considering that, you know initially there was a sense of, well, he's marrying a commoner. And now her commonness
1: has been eclipsed by her whiteness. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, uh, yeah, I, the work of uh, Patricia Akemi on, on, on rank, Uh, how she uh, theorized drank as also a racializing uh, factor. Uh, If you think of Malvolio, for example, in Twelfth Night, uh, even though the gender transgression and sexuality transgression is very much uh, the main uh, big transgression of the play, the cross-dressing and uh, everything else, at the end of the day, uh, uh, this um, uh, the, the people Ed, who performed that transgression, Sebastian and uh, Viola, uh, get rewarded with marriage. But the person who gets severely punished is Malvolio, because in that moment of him thinking about uh, learning or acquiring nobility, uh, um, where when he's thinking about, you know, uh, the velvet that he's going to wear. And like this, he's fantasizing. It gives us, the play gives us this moment of him uh, transgressing rank to become uh, uh, Olivia's uh, partner. And this is when the play comes down and, and, and punishes him very much severely because he thought about, or he imagined, uh, this kind of uh, intermarriage, which is very much racialized. He cannot learn whiteness. He cannot learn mobility and uh, nobility, even though conduct, conduct books were very, very much uh, uh, de rigueur. Uh, you know, Markham and uh, all these other uh, writers in our period that were te- were showing you or giving you uh, the tools to become or to feign nobility, uh, but that this only goes that far. If somebody who is not uh, seen as white uh, um, at- attempts this 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 uh, crossover, they get punished very very severely.
0: Right. And it strikes me um, that in a play like The Island Princess, which you've written about there, in order to make someone convertible, they have to be whitened. And that becomes one of the the sort of central markers of convertibility is if you are white, well, you are always already, you know, properly Christian and therefore convertible. And I, I think that that's a quite striking one.
1: Yeah, uh, um, this is uh, this is this goes back to our history together, uh, Jen. Uh, I remember when you when I was a grad student and I was talking to you about the Island Princess in in your office, uh, and we were looking at uh, the title page of uh, Leonardo and de Argonzola's uh, Conquistas de las Islas Malucas, which is the source uh, of uh, the island princess. And in that uh, title page, uh, the, the, the foreign queen who is in regalia and half naked and she is straddling a crocodile, she accepts uh, uh, the biblical uh, Spanish revelation, the conquest, she's like very open to it. And I remember uh, you telling me uh, about how her body, her embodiment is very much central to this fantasy of conquest. Uh, And that was like a very, very, uh, that was a moment where I felt like my whole body was uh, was responding to uh, to to this uh, door that you opened for me uh, uh, that I have not seen uh, before. Uh, what 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 is very uh, fascinating is that in that source play in the source uh, in Argonzola, so there it's made of like little fictions, little vignettes uh, from indigenous knowledge. So there is a moment of co- uh, not only con- colonial violence and conquest, but also colonial extraction, because these uh, folklore stories get very get get, uh, get uh, uh, anthologized in this in this book of conquest. But the fascinating thing is that in the source book, uh, the Spanish princess actually picks up. One of the native princes, and together they conquer the the the, the European uh, conquistador. Uh, and if we if we think, my reading of the play is that if we think of uh, indigenous philosophy or creolization that happens in the Malay pe- Peninsula, it's all about this unity between islands that the play does not give us. Uh, It only extracts the knowledge and then makes it look like it was a moment of conversion, of willful conversion, and and, people get uh, the the, the happy ending is of this uh, uh, life under Portuguese uh, colonization. and I'm very much in my uh, in my work on the play now. I'm looking at the indigenous uh, creolization moment that um, the European text took away from us, or, uh, from from uh, uh, from the indigenous uh, uh, reading. I would say.
0: Right. Yeah. So one of the things that I think. Um, A lot of people, when they come to read some of these um, plays set elsewhere that are clearly, to some extent, thinking about England um, or in London in particular, um, how do you see it as or or how would you help people make sense of the fact that it's the Portuguese? Um, But of course, what's happened is that it's being staged in London for an audience for whom the non-historical outcome of, you know, conquest and, um, you know, uh, extraction would be what they want to hear. So the story it wants to tell this London audience um, is about that. But it's also about the Portuguese. Um, So what are your thoughts about the sort of the the interplay um, between sort of whiteness and white Christian European identity? With the sort of movements in between different types of European identity, like the Portuguese or the French, etc.
1: Yeah. On the oh, that's such a great qu- uh, question. No, it's a big question. <laughs> yeah. I um. So I I feel like uh because uh the the Portuguese uh they had they had uh. They very much encourage inter- intermarriage. Uh, they call them the Kazakusht, from Kazar, from a couple. So uh, uh, there is a sense of, yeah, of course, you're going to go and intermarry with the indi- indigen- indigenous population. And uh, um, I want to tell you. Um, Who's the French philosopher um, that um, the Book of Commonwealth um, starts with a B? I'll come Baudin? back. Baudin. Yes. Tomodin? Yeah, Jean Boudin, uh, part of his uh, philosophy uh, or, or thinking about conquest is that you cannot conquer only mil- militarily through force. You need to use reproduction. You need to intermarry and uh, populate these conquered uh, places through uh, uh, reproductive, uh, f- force. Uh, so it's not, wh- one does not work alone. It has to go one, uh, together. And this is, I feel, uh, I think is different from how the English, uh, approach conquest, uh, because of pro- protestantism is that, uh, intermarriage was not, uh, uh, thought of as, uh, this, this, uh, uh Settler colonial tool. Uh, You try to convert, but there's not this uh, crossover uh, that we see in, you know, in between the Spanish and um, and um, uh, and, for example, the natives of. the, I'm, I'm thinking of the uh, mestizaje myth that uh, the origin of Mexico is mm-hmm. this uh, moment mm-hmm. of intermarriage, which is rape, uh, between uh, uh, Cortez and the indigenous uh, woman. And that the, the myth is that this moment of métissage created the the Mexican uh, population that is a hybrid between, uh, you know, Spanish uh, power and indigenous uh, knowledge, which which it's it's uh, it's a uh, Um, a myth that has been very much uh, uh, critiqued and debunked uh, because of its uh, racist um, underpinnings. Uh, but I do feel that I I do I do think that because they're Portuguese uh, in England uh, in the early modern stage, this fantasy was able to play out uh, because it's what the the the, Euro, the 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 Iberians are are doing. Um, it's not us, um, so to speak. Right. So they get it's almost like they're getting both
0: in Helen Princess. You get the the sort of fantasy of. Um, exploitation and extraction, but also intermarriage without the anxiety about intermarriage and having to sort of worry about bloodlines.
1: And, yes, yes. And uh, yeah, absolutely, I, that's uh, that's very true.
0: Can you say a little bit about, because um, a lot of your work focuses on drama and we were just checking about um, Island Princess. Do you think the stage, um, how much do you think that the stage in and of itself and drama as a genre affects the representation of the gender and race of queens? Um, You've worked on the fairy queen as well. I'm just wondering about the staging and how much that context changes the representation.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I need to write down all these questions because these (laughs) These are are so so wonderful. Uh, These are the ones that I struggle with. uh, It's, uh, uh, you know, when you think of uh, uh, the staging of Cleopatra, for example, it's always, always that round bed very lush, very sexualized. Uh, the materiality uh, that the stage enables and the sound of difference. Uh, you, 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 you know, for example, uh, to go back to Catherine of Aragon, whenever she staged, she's always staged with this very, very uh, uh, heavy uh, accent. So you can hear otherness, uh, so you can hear race, and you can see it uh, being materialized through, um, uh, through 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 props through the embodiment through also uh the blackening of characters uh the work of you know of course of ian smith here is so uh important about thinking about how the die uh of uh, uh, on the stage is actually so powerful in create because in in seeing grace uh, and this is ian smith's uh terminology is, when you uh, when you you, race making is also part of seeing it uh, happening and the stage gives this uh, center stage so to speak um yeah the mediation of the audience is one of those factors
0: and we don't have as much evidence as as we might like about how people were responding to these plays you know um, we don't have lots and lots of reviews or anything like that But I do find, you know, it must have come into play in the sense that on the contemporary stage where you have um, multiracial casting um, and cross-racial casting, sometimes done consciously and for effect, sometimes done as a kind of race-blind or race-neutral practice, audiences, however much you might, you know, want to be just saying, well, this is a character, this is an Amelia who happens to be Black, What audiences do immediately is race, both the actor and the character. And anytime you're performing for a contemporary audience, you have to be mindful of the fact that their ability to read bodies will exceed any of your intentions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And here, the work of Ayana Thompson on color-conscious casting has helped given me very much this vocabulary, vocabulary to be able to uh, see the. the the fault lines in uh, uh, colorblind casting, for example. And if uh, if theater uh, makers uh, are not aware of uh, these racial dynamics, uh, it can go very, very wrong. And uh, this is why uh, also our work on race and racing is also very helpful to uh, uh, theatre practitioners uh, because they can also uh, get a sense of how you know whiteness was also is created in the text. Uh, 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 um, you know uh, i work on foreign queens but also as i work on foreign queens i think i also see how whiteness is uh is 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 produced uh how some queens are con- are considered uh, white their their virtue um, i th- for example currently i'm working on uh, thomas of woodstock and of bohemia even though she's you know she's uh, uh um um she's non-english but when uh when in 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 a play, in a play like uh thomas of woodstock she gets um she she all traces of her otherness are uh, muted and you can see the process of whitening her uh because you know and and transforming her into a proto-protestant uh figure uh, in the imagination. That's so interesting. Um,
0: that makes me think about Arthur Little's work about white hands. Um, and and actually I was quite struck by it because again, I was just teaching Hester Poulter's The Unfortunate Florinda. Oh, and one yeah. of the things I noticed there was that instead of white hands, it was white shoulders. And so there's this foreign queen Zabra who gets um, lost at a, on a on a, a sort of sea storm with her ladies, who um, rolls up into Spain and ends up marrying the king. Uh, he, it's a it's. She does it rather than get raped, essentially, you know. And it even says like rather than you know wait for him to force her, she decides to to marry him and convert. But she is quite explicitly described as having white shoulders, um, and one of my students. You know i pointed this out one of my students suggested that you might see what's registering there is some change in fashion and of course if you look at 17th century aristocratic women's dresses they do have a lot of off the shoulder dresses yes. much more so than the days of the you know the full ruffs yes so you could see that that racing of the female body particularly of the upper class female body sort of shifting you know based upon what was um, important at the time and Zahra was interesting because, you know, we find out really early that she's, she's super white looking. Um, but there's another character, um, uh, Fidelia, who isn't, we don't know that she's black until later in the, the romance. We are just told that she's beautiful. And it's not until no, now I'm like worried I'm mixing up my characters because there's a bunch of Fs. It's, yeah, I think it's it's Fidelia who, who fi- you finally do find out that she has black skin um, because her beloved, Um, mentions that his picture of her is, he claims it's a Madonna, but it's a black Madonna. And so he gets asked about it and he's like, we just have a black Madonna. (laughs) Um, So we just find out in this really weird roundabout way. um, And it's such an interesting mechanism because you know there's been so much work to make sure that we see Zabra as white, that when we get to that, you suddenly have to come to terms with the fact that you were racing a character and had defaulted to whatever that was. And I think for most readers, because of the heavy emphasis on Zabra's whiteness um, and Florinda's whiteness, that um, you you sort of automatically race the character um, and it disappears until that moment where all of a sudden it sort of gives you this back formation to realize what you were doing all along, it's not that you weren't and it's not that the text wasn't, it's that you could like, you know, Erase that uh, for a while and not be conscious
1: of it. And then all of a sudden, it's this moment where it forces you to consciousness. Oh, fascinating. It's fascinating because it's like, uh, it's really an example of how we're conditioned to see whiteness as neutral uh, until blackness uh, enters uh, the chat. (laughs) Uh, And this is when, you know, we start, oh, we notice race. Uh, as as you said, kind of not commenting on the the how whiteness is being produced. Uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, you know the the shoulders uh, is is so in line with how Catherine of Braganza was uh, presented because when she arrived. Uh, Peeps tell, tells us that she's wearing this very like this shabby uh, Spanish habit, and her hair looks like the uh, the the Iberian like uh, uh, hairstyle was the frop. Uh, that he thinks is very, very ugly. And you see her being graced as she enters uh, uh, London in her first procession. Uh, You see her, they're they're commenting on her olivaster skin. Uh, And then um, this image sticks to her, uh, but the images of her the ones that she commissions from the Italian painter uh, uh, because her um, the mistress of Charles II was French, so that was her way of uh, uh, self-presentation uh, is very, very much the white ideal uh, um, figure of purity that we see in, 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 in Renaissance art. So, uh, um, it's it's very fascinating. And also, of course, you know, the shoulders, her, sh- her white shoulders uh, show. That's so, yeah, it was one of those things that I, I you know, I, I
0: have a sense of the aesthetics of 17th century paintings, but until I was thinking about it in those terms, it suddenly, The other thing that um, I've been thinking about too, this relates up to some of the work that like and Cooper has done um, on makeup um, and race and, and the way that that comes into play, also Andrea Stevens. But I was thinking as well about just what it means to paint white versus black skin and the mechanics that people must have understood about how you produce certain kinds of tones of skin. I was able to find a little bit about it, but I'm not an art historian. So one of the things I would love is to um, know more about the mechanics and the theorizing of how you produce certain tints of skin. There's been a lot of really great work done on the sort of presentational aspects of, you know, the idea that you might sort of insert a black servant as a way of setting off the whiteness yeah. of the aristocratic person in there um, but I, I've also I do wonder you know how do you produce that luminescent white skin as mm-hmm. opposed to some of the darker skins um, and you know there's there's a whole technical aspect to that that I think um, in terms of I know and um, a lot of Renaissance art has sort of thought about things like how how the how material, is important to it like the lapis lazuli yeah. that becomes important for the blue of the Virgin Mary's dress um, and I I am curious about the extent to which in um, the visual medium that the, the any of those kind of visual representations that there there had to have been a technique of producing skin color yeah. at the time uh, I love to know more about it um, I, I looked around if any if anyone watching this has sources beyond um beyond what I, I've been able to find I'd love to know because I just I would really be fascinated to to know you know what is it that you're thinking as a painter how do you go about producing it and obviously we, we don't know as much as we'd like about the stage um and the British were not on the, the sort of leading edge of portraiture, they imported their, um, their portraitists for the most part, um, but they, they must have been bringing over some of that knowledge. Um, and so that's, that's one of the things that I'm, I'm hoping to discover more about
1: yeah i uh, this is a question for uh for art historians and also i'm thinking of uh, uh miles Greer, greer's work on inkface uh he focuses more on uh, on the stage but he's uh, very much thinking about uh you uh and the production of you uh so uh, uh, uh miles if if you have an answer uh <laughs> Dial, bye. Oh. <laughs> on the screen. Uh, uh, this is uh, really so uh so wonderful and you gave me so much to think about and uh uh and keep on uh, uh exploring. This is uh, uh I'm very grateful for this conversation. Oh. Uh, uh, you and thank have- you for entertaining my
0: my big questions, the ones that I, I um, can't answer for my students. <laughs>
1: I uh, I'm uh, very I'm very happy you asked them and you gave me a chance to um, uh, I think uh, vocalize this world that I've been inhabiting for years, and um, it's uh, it's very uh, useful to to. To actually have conversations and I think you know with COVID what we lost is uh these uh the ability to have conversations around uh conferences and uh before and after uh to keep this the, these queries ongoing so I want to thank you very much for this uh for this opportunity Jen.
0: Yeah absolutely and it's it's just lovely to see people. I know that one of the things that a lot of people have been using in the absence of of human contact has been these various different forums like the kind that um, the Folger Shakespeare Library and the um, Arizona State Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies, those have been hugely important for people to help keep us grounded and know that we're not just sort of writing into a void.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Thank you very much for this uh, for for uh, this line, lifeline. Uh, the folder and Newberry and ACMRS, uh, and also you ho- we're hoping that uh, that this accessibility also remains after the pandemic. Uh, um, and I um, um, I want to say yes, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for uh, uh, asking yeah. me on. I uh, 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 the uh, the um, closing uh, question that uh, is a bit lit's uh, closing question is uh, uh, what does literature mean to you, uh, and if you have uh, thoughts on what that is.
0: I mean <laughs> the turnabout fair fair I asked you the, the big questions. Um, you know, I think I think when it comes down to it, that I, I think what literature is to me is a space for communication. Um, and it's a way of having a creative experience that's shared. Um, And what I mean by that is that we can all sit by ourselves and read a book or an article or watch a play. Um, And where the text becomes literary for me is where you become part of a reading or watching community um, so that you can learn to explain to other people what it is that you see when you read that book or you, you know, attend a performance of a play, um, it takes it's it's what enables us to go from the solitary experience of the aesthetic um, and the representational to the communal.
1: Oh, that's uh, that's so beautiful that uh, yeah, you you thought about uh, this uh, the network uh, that literature enables. Uh, um, uh, I. I like it so much. Uh, 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 for me, it's, uh, it's the sharing of stories, uh, this desire to connect uh, uh, as well through storytelling. Uh, it's what humanizes us, uh, what makes us recognizable other than, you know, one of, uh, just one of many, uh, so I want to thank you very, very much for this uh, chance to have a conversation with you, Jen.
0: It's been lovely. It's so nice to have a chance to talk to you. Me too, me too. And I'm delighted that you have your new position that you will be starting in the fall, um, but it is, it's is—it's a loss for us. Um, and um, I do congratulate you on it though. And I think that, um, I hope that we'll be able to go back to conferences so that I'll have a chance to do more of this with you.
1: Yes, I would uh, love that very much.